Hello, everyone. It's so good to be back. This is Katie from Anthropologically Speaking. Hi, I'm Isabel. And I'm also Isabel. And we've got a really good episode for you today. We're going to be walking you through some forensic cases. Um, But before that, I'd just like to say I hope everybody had a great holiday season filled with family, fun, and friends. And it's great to be back in 2020 to be starting uh, off some new episodes for you guys. So we're really excited. Happy New Year, everybody. So today we're going to be talking about forensic anthropology. Um, Like Katie said, we're going to be taking a case study approach today. Um, So I think we're all going to be going over real-life criminal cases um, where forensic anthropologists were employed. So I'll start. I'll give a brief um, background for everyone. Um, So forensic anthropology is a subfield of biological anthropology, and it applies um, anthropological methods and theory to forensic problems or cases, so legal um, cases. And forensic anthropologists work in the research, recovery, and analysis um, of badly decomposed or skeletonized human remains. So forensic anthropologists um, can assist in investigations of mysterious circumstances um, like murder, suicide, accident, accidents, and abuse. Um, and they contribute to investigations involving mass disasters and genocide as well. Um, so ultimately, forensic anthropologists work for academic institutions, um, especially in Canada, Um, but they're hired specifically by law enforcement on a case-by-case basis. So Katie, if you want to start with your case. Yeah, so the first case study that we're going to look at is one that made a huge splash in Canada in the um, early 2000s. And it's really interesting to note that two of the forensic anthropology case studies that we're looking at today are Canadian, which is a little bit unusual for forensic anthropology because we don't have a lot of forensic anthropology in Canada. Um, in a lot of ways, we're lucky to not have a lot of forensic anthropology in Canada. Um, we have a lower violent death rate and suspicious suspicious death rate than um, some other countries. So, but this is a Canadian case. This is the Picton Pig Farm case. And uh, that took place out in BC. So, um, effectively, uh, there was this guy. His name was Robert Picton, but he went by Willie. And he was a pig farmer from Port Coquitlam, BC. So, along with his brother Dave, Willie ran a bar, but the bar was unlicensed, and it was called Piggy's Palace, which I guess is fitting for a pig farm. <laughs> um, and it was located right near the farm. And uh, Piggy's Palace was frequented by um, people who struggled with drug addiction and by uh, sex workers as well, uh, that mostly hailed from Vancouver's downtown east side. So um, prior to... Uh, I guess, the more notorious cases that were happening at um, the pig farm. In 1997, um, a woman named Wendy Lynn Eistetter was allegedly stabbed by Picton. And Picton was charged, but the charges were later dropped to the fact that um, she was seen as an unreliable witness because um, she had taken um, some drugs at the time, so she was seen as unreliable. But later... Uh, While executing a warrant to search for illegal firearms on Picton's property, police encountered um, the ID cards of some missing women that they were looking into, as well as bags of bloody clothes, which is uh, always a little bit suspicious. (laughs) So they opened a homicide investigation. 
So once the homicide investigation, that's where the opened, that's where the um, forensic anthropology really came into play because forensic anthropologists are mostly consultants. So a lot of the times, um, as mentioned, they'll have like a full-time post at an institution um, and they might study other facets of biological anthropology and then they'll come in to consult. So um, over 18 months, uh, ending in no November 2003, Picton's farm was entirely searched. And it was huge. It was seven hectares in size. And um, a lot of it was used for dirt piling and landfill. So um, although the entire search took a long time, so 18 months, it initially needed to work really quickly because uh, there was a search warrant that they needed to extend. So that kind of shows some of the, I guess, red tape that you might encounter in forensic practice. Um, not everything can happen idealistically. So um, the forensic investigators in charge of the site knew that given the size and condition of the grounds, non-traditional methods were going to need to be employed. So they actually modeled a lot of the methods off of some of the ones that they used at Ground Zero um, in the search following 9-11. So they divide the site into 216 grids, and dividing into grids is fairly common practice for um, anthropology, in particular archaeology, but these are huge grids. I'm not talking one meter by one meter, I'm talking 20 meters by 20 meters. So each of the 10 buildings were also designated as a site, um, and they actually had to take a lot of them down and search the foundations because they were worried that stuff might be hiding in the foundations. So they searched each grid methodically and in sequence, like any good archaeologist would. Um, and when there is a tip given that there might be evidence in a particular place, um, the search continued in order of the grids to ensure that nothing was missed. So although traditional methodology at the time would have said to use film photography so it can be like more tangible, the size of the site actually merited switching to digital photography in order to better document and catalog it, which was not really common at the time. Um, and over 130,000 photos were taken, which is huge, which really shows how important documentation is for forensic anthropologists, because as you're excavating, you're destroying. So you really need to get that context. So um, there were over 110 anthropologists that were employed. That's a lot of anthropologists. A lot of them were actually students. Um, and they were instructed to look for anything that was foreign or out of place in the dirt. And they screened it all, put on conveyor belts. It was a very like, large-scale investigation. It wasn't like a small, bit-by-bit -bit traditional archaeology excavation. And they found stuff like building materials and clothing, plastic, garbage, animal bones. But anything that was thought to be bone, any bone at all, was put in a bucket to be examined by a forensic anthropologist, like the head one in charge of the site. And garbage was placed and double-checked, so lots of soil was screened, lots of soil was sifted, and because it was a pig par farm, there were over 40,000 animal bones that were assessed in the search for human bones, which is a lot. So, in the end, they found on the site the DNA of 33 missing women. And during the search, police discovered the heads, hands, and feet of Mona Wilson, Andrea Josbury, and Serena Abbotsway in buckets, the partial jaws of Marnie Frey and Brenda Wolf outside the slaughterhouse, and Georgina Pop Poppins' hand 
uh, bones in the pig pen. And uh, it's actually interesting to note that there were some bones that were missed by the forensic anthropologist in this investigation. There were two toe bones missed. So doesn't matter how thorough you are, sometimes you're going to miss stuff. Um, and that was later found by uh, someone in the opposition. Um, and Picton was ultimately charged in the murders of 26 women and convicted in the second degree murders of six women. Um, ultimately, the courts didn't press on any more um, due to different legal restraints, time, money, resources, because he was already getting a great deal of time in prison. So, but yeah, that's that's my monologue on the <laughs> Picton Pig Farms. Yeah. Yeah, that one's a really good um, example of forensic anthropology at work because it was so large-scale and strategically done with, like, all the grids, and it was such mm -hmm. a large area for excavation. Yeah, one of the people that worked on the case was actually Tracy Rogers, and she's uh, not far from here. She's at University of Toronto, Mississauga, and she does a lot of really interesting forensic work in Canada. Yeah, I believe she's one of the only forensic anthropologists in Ontario. That she is, yeah. She is the only, right, that works yeah, for law enforcement. Either one of the only or the only, yeah. yeah. It's also a cool case because they used so many um, anthropology students from... I believe you have uh, UBC or yeah, one Simon of, Fraser University. Definitely yeah. some of the universities they pulled uh, anthropology students out of, which is, I mean, it for people that want to go into forensics and that kind of thing, it's great to have that hands-on work. So they have that experience of working mm -hmm. the cases of one of the most infamous serial killers in Canadian history. I can't remember if you said it, but do you know how long the excavation and um, analysis of the farm went on for because I've heard 18 it, months yeah yeah really long, long time time meticulous mm -hmm. um, investigation and that might not, not be anything. like long for like an archaeological site because a lot of times archaeological sites you know like every summer you're going there and but like in a forensic context that's a really long time and they're trying to hurry it along I think a little bit because the longer they let remains decompose the less likely you are to find them I think or like the more decomposed they get obviously so yeah, you're losing definitely. context and yeah. evidence yeah. and stuff and so. one thing that's important to consider too in forensic cases is um, forensic anthropologists are being hired by law enforcement um, so they're not only doing their own work um, they do have to follow um, and consult with law enforcement so they have to protocol. follow yeah a protocol that maybe they're not accustomed to because they're following um, like the top investigators of the case. and Yeah, and it'd be really difficult in this case too with the large amount of animal bones because if you're not trained in zoo archaeology or what animal bones look like compared to human remains, it would be really, really difficult. Yeah, definitely. So as well, I don't know if you want to do your case now. Mine? Okay. I'll... So mine's not a Canadian case. Um, and... It doesn't exactly, it was, it took place in the 1970s, so um, it didn't exactly, in the newspaper articles that I found, employ forensic anthropologists or forensic archaeologists, but the methods that they used um, really resembled um, the work that's done now um, in cases using archaeology and forensic anthropology. It's also just a really fascinating it case. It is a fascinating <laughs> case, so. <laughs> For anyone out there who likes true crime, yeah. this is where it's at. Um, so it's the case of John Wayne Gacy. Um, he's one of the most pro prolific serial killers in history, so um, the name might ring a bell. Um, in between 1972 and 1978, um, he murdered 33 um, young men in Cook County, Illinois, um, and he actually buried 26 of them in the crawl space under his home. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. So, <laughs> um, and then as well as um, some were buried in his um, like back patio um, and shed, I believe. Like front yard, I think. Yeah, so front yard. Um, so he's actually, he's dubbed the clown killer um, because his job um, was actually, he dressed up as a clown. It's so creepy. For, yeah, for um, children birthday parties. Um, so the case is really interesting. Um, when the crawl space underneath his home um, was found, so it was a dirt-floored crawl space, um, and it was very tight. It was around two and a half feet deep, um, and it ran underneath the entire house. So the soil was covered with quicklime, um, which basically is, like, wet, I believe. It's, like, wet mud. Um, so it was very messy. Under there. there was thousands of worms as well when they went in um, to excavate. Um, but the methods that the investigator used, they actually employed archaeologists in this case. Um, so each grave, the thing that's interesting about this case, too, is um, each victim, so there's 26 um, victims in the crawl space, was buried, was buried in a grave. Um, John Wayne Gacy actually owned a contracting business. Um, so he had his staff um, come and build or like dig, I guess. Um, grave-sized trenches in the soil. That's so suspicious. Very <laughs> suspicious. Um, oh, yeah, under the ruse that they were building them for um, pipes, I believe he said. Oh, no. um, that doesn't seem plausible. Yeah. No. Okay, never <laughs> question your boss, I guess. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Underneath his home. Um, so when archaeologists went in to excavate, um, they actually used, they used archaeological tools. Um, so they used a sketch. Um, and this is um, used in other archaeology cases. Um, so John Wayne Gacy himself actually drew a sketch for um, the investigators. He drew a sketch of the crawl space, um, and he actually numbered and mapped out every grave. Um, he also knew a lot of the names of his victims, um, so it was very, very specific for them to follow. Um, so they went in initially with invasive methods. Um, so invasive meso- methods in, in archaeology is um, they didn't do any um, like radar, any imaging, they went right away with shovels and um, started digging. So they started in one corner of the crawl space and they just moved the soil layer by layer. Um, so it definitely was a really slow process, um, like most excavations can be. They continued to take pictures throughout the entire investigation um, and they ended up um, removing, I think it was five gallon buckets of. Um, oh I don't want to say, like, decomposing human remains and flesh. Yeah, I guess it's, we should have disclosed before this episode yeah. that we might be talking about some gruesome Yeah, yeah, it's stuff. not <laughs> nice to talk about. Um, but, yeah, and then there was a lot of um, skeletonized or somewhat skeletonized um, human remains as well. So they were those were placed in body bags. Um, so, yeah, this case is really interesting, even though it happened... Um, again, in the 1970s, I think the excavation took place in 1978. Um, they were still employing these methods. Um, and another thing that's interesting is excavating the remains also um, revealed the cause of death of Gacy's victims. Most of the human remains were found with either um, a rope um, around the neck um, or cloth down the esophagus. Mm. Yeah, so... Oh my God. Um, it helped with identify that. Um, and it also, they excavated wallets, um, again, helping identify um, the victims. 
so when it, so uh, eventually the house was demolished in 1979 so um, immediately after the excavation um, the whole house was, de- was demolished um, and then they they also um, excavated the backyard again they found remains underneath um, the patio um, and like I said earlier John Wayne Gacy was a contractor um, and he had been um, working on many other properties in the area um, and recently actually I believe it was in like 2016 um people are still wanting um there to be um di- like they want to dig at other uh, like some of his other sites to see if um there's a possibility that there's more victims wow. buried at different sites but yeah i thought it was a really interesting case because um even though it was kind of before um a lot of forensic anthropology methods were being used in criminal investigations um they still meticulously used archaeology in this case Mm-hmm, yeah, definitely. That one's really cool. I feel like I heard a really gross fact about that one where it was like they discovered the crawl space because there was a police officer at John Wayne Gacy's house because they suspected him, any- suspected him anyways, and then they could smell the crawl space from, like, the bathroom or yeah. something, yeah, which I, is Yeah, I believe horrible. it was, um, like, they smelt it through a pipe or something. Yeah. And then they opened up the crawl space, and it was... Yeah. Yeah. Oh it was not a pleasant case to look at, but No. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but a good example. Yeah, of... definitely a good example of how um how it's been used for so long, these archaeological methods. So. Even when they didn't know well, like even when they were explicitly using forensic anthropologists, mm-hmm. it was still archaeologists using the, the um methods. Yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. Alright, Isabel, do you wanna Yeah <laughs> Sure. So I'm going to talk about the Bruce MacArthur case in Toronto and first off I would just like to note and disclose I'm not an expert on this topic and I acknowledge that this case is very recent and so there's still many people affected by the loss of the victims so if I make any errors in the recounting of the investigation I apologize and offer my condolences to friends and family of the men who were killed. So Bruce Bruce MacArthur is a serial killer that plagued Toronto's gay village from, I think, 2010 to 2017 and was arrested in 2018 for the murder of at least eight men. So Bruce was a trusted landscaper who um, killed and dismembered men and buried them in in a client's yard where investigators found the remains of at least eight individuals. So forensic investigators use techniques to carefully and meticulously dig up and excavate human remains in such a way as to not disturb the site too significantly or to lose context. And no bodies or evidence was found at at the many other properties that MacArthur had worked on as a landscaper, which um, limited the archaeological search to a single property. Um, So some of the methods they used at this site was they brought in cadaver dogs to indicate um, kind of approximately where these bodies were found. And cadaver dogs are really cool because they're trained specifically to um, be able to track and uh, detect specifically human decomposing remains. Um, like they're even trained to ignore decomposing animal scents, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, also, ground penetrating radar was used in this case to um, identify areas of interest, which is when they walk around with this cool radar device that sends um, signals into the ground and can detect um, abnormalities and anomalies in the earth. And that's kind of where um, excavators and researchers can begin to um, narrow down the search area and start to excavate from that. 
So after they kind of limited the area and used cadaver dogs and penetrating radar, they divided the yard up into a grid, and the investigators worked from the inside or the outside in to um, see what they could find. And as the investigators removed soil, it's put through a sifter where um, remains are revealed, and then if they're found, they're in, uh, photographed in situ. Um, in this case, also, large machinery is used to remove large amounts of soil. Um, and then once you kind of eliminated and got to an area of interest, uh, more precise tools such as trowels and brushes and were used to um, expose the remains because you have to do really, really careful, meticulous work around the remains as to not disturb anything that could be in the soil um, surrounding the bodies such as like personal effects or um, there's something called adipocere, which is human fat that is, is it liquefied, solidified? Saponified. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so yeah. it's pretty gross, but it's really important to investigative <laughs> cases because often it can last longer than um, soft tissue. Am I wrong? Like it can yeah, adipocere right? is really interesting because it's like a soapy wax type thing. Um, that can really preserve a body. So um, there's, for example, in one of the museums, uh, the soap lady, and it's a lady who's completely saponified. But yeah, adipocere can really, uh, adipocere kind of translates, um, I believe, to, um, I think it's like corpse wax, or I'll definitely have to check up on it. But um, yeah, it's... It's it preserves bodies. Yeah. Um, so then at the site, they were taking soil samples from deposition locations, where they could anal analyze and determine if um, the burial was primary or secondary, which means whether the body had been moved after decomposition or if it had been like placed there and not moved. So you can kind of tell. Yeah, so primary like, would have been the site that the. The individual body. was murdered. Uh, I think it's when the they site, were buried Yeah, the site's where they're originally... And not moved. moved. Interred, right, yeah. Right. So you can tell because there's often, like, evidence of soft tissue in the soil or, like, um, decomposition fluids. Um, DNA analysis was also used in this case and bloodstain patterns, which helped identify some of the victims. Um, they also used fingerprints from them. So all of the... I believe all of the remains were identified... Um, using these techniques. So, yeah, they were very meticulous at this site and did a really effective job because it's been so recent. So they obviously mm -hmm. have um, very established methods of excavation to not miss anything or disturb context or anything. So mm -hmm. that was... Do you yeah. know if Tracy Rogers worked on that? I believe so. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah she would have been there. So, yeah. Those are kind of three different, three very different, different case study cases about different time periods yeah, and <laughs> all used forensic anthropology and archaeology if you'd like to hear more um case studies where we kind of break apart the methods they use in um actual criminal cases then let us know because a lot of the times i know people really like to listen to um like radio and podcasts that um involve true crime but it's a lot of um i guess the best way to put it would be just like sensationalized gawking <laughs> yeah. um like uh so it's i think it's really cool to hear perspective where we're actually talking about the scientific approach that was taken towards um investigating the site investigating the remains that kind of thing yeah there's a lot of work put into forensic 
um, investigations, mm-hmm. like more than people I think believe, because they have to be so careful and document everything at every single step along the way, and that's really important in um, court cases and mm-hmm. any sort of investigation that involves the law, basically. Yeah, yeah like is mentioned, um, there's a lot that has to be done according to police procedural like chain of custody has to be maintained which is really huge to make sure that evidence isn't tampered with to make sure that um, evidence can be reliable and can be um, used in court yeah you don't want a good piece of evidence being um i don't know what it's called compromised Compromised. yeah compromised yeah so it won't be able to be used against the um perpetrator yeah yeah no (laughs) exactly if it's mishandled um, then you're throwing away a case, a essentially. Yeah, you're throwing away a case. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, yeah, there definitely is a huge place for forensic anthropology um, in terms of skeletonized remains, in terms of um, badly decomposed remains. And sometimes they'll call a forensic anthropologist out to the site um, because they think that you know somebody like a hiker has come across what they think is like a human hand like the bones of a human hand they'll call a forensic anthropologist in and sometimes the forensic anthropologist will look at it and like a lot of the the times this happens they'll look at it and be like this is not human Mm -hmm. um so a lot of forensic anthropology is not only um going and investigating the cases it can be like confirming like is this human is this even a forensic yeah Yeah, because they go in and they have that list of like check boxes they have mm-hmm. to make to make it a forensic case and like the first one is is it human yes yeah. or no and then i feel like the second one is like is it archaeological or modern because if mm-hmm. it's an archaeological skeleton it doesn't it's go to the coroner yeah, yeah they don't need to investigate it it turns i think it turns into an archaeological mm-hmm. yeah. thing instead mm-hmm. and, and um, we can do an entire episode on that if you guys are interested yeah yeah let us know if you guys are interested we can do more case studies um we can also talk about Um, different work that forensic anthropologists do like I mentioned earlier um, a lot of the investigations involve mass disasters um, Mm -hmm, as well as genocide which is kind of a something we didn't touch on today in our case studies yeah trying to like investigate victims that had been killed in a genocide yeah and and victims in a genocide often um, when there's you know mass graves that are found um, it's anthropologists go in and try and um, identify individuals just to kind of give the families closure. Yeah, um, so it's not really necessarily cool. for yeah. Because they can use DNA to do that too, mm-hmm. which is really interesting. And yeah, forensic anthropology kind of encompasses many different um, fields of anthropology to get a holistic approach on an investigation to get the most ideal and effective yeah information yeah yeah Mm -hmm. yeah definitely yeah and forensic anthropologists are really they have to adapt as well because they're not always working like in their the lab that they're used to they're working in improvised sites um improvised labs they're in the water (laughs) yeah in the water sometimes um and a lot of forensic anthropologists are also very skilled uh forensic archaeologists um and that depends on the jurisdiction um it's a little bit different um, depending where you are in the world, who's trained in what, but mm-hmm. yeah. Well, should we turn on to a brighter note and 
do our non-human shout out yeah let's <laughs> do that as well is it your turn yeah i think it is um so i'm gonna shout out my dog cassie today she's a little german shepherd mixed Aww. pup I say pup. She's 10. Um, <laughs> she's so sweet. She's so sweet. She's very tiny. She still acts like a puppy. Oh my goodness. Um, well, hi, Cassie. Hello. <laughs> Hopefully she's listening. I'm not, yeah. I'm not too sure. <laughs> anyway, yeah. That's my shout out for you. <laughs> so if you would like um, to request an episode, please feel free to reach us through social media. Um on Instagram, we're at Anthro Speaking, or you can find us on Facebook. Um, don't forget to listen to some of our past radio shows on the CFMU 93.3 website. And uh, yeah, we're looking forward to having another episode for you next week. We're excited to be back. Thanks, guys. See you guys next week. Thanks, everyone.